Good morning, Double Grace Church. My name is Wade. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I'm uh, so glad that uh, we can come listen to the word, that we can sing the songs, that we can actually hear each other uh, when we sing. That's amazing. Um, for those who are watching on the live stream, uh, I wish you could be here so you can hear your fellow believers sing. Um, I love what David said at first, which is, we don't have a new theology here. Um, we're not trying to be neat. We're not trying to be novel. Those in the room, you can see there's nothing fancy about this building. There's nothing behind me at all. Um, it's, but the truth is powerful. Um, and when I'm preaching to you, I'm not going to preach anything neat or novel. Um, there's, uh, If you've heard me enough, you know that I'm not super charismatic or whatever. But the the, the, the truth of God is powerful, and this is what we need. So, um, we're going to look at this long list of names in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a Christmas passage because it points to Christ. Points to Christ. Um, Christmas is past. I hope you guys had a good Christmas. Um, and even though Christmas is past, we're going to meditate on this passage today. So, Let's take a look at it. This is in your bulletins, if you're following along online. This is uh, on your screen as well. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, I knew I'd mess up the names at some point, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. Um, if you guys want to listen to this in song form, uh, go on Spotify or YouTube, type in Andrew Peterson, Matthew Begats, and he made a whole song about this. Um, it sounds better than how I read it. Um, but here we have it, this long list of names. 
and this long list of names in the context of Christmas. And thank you to Christina for leading the songs that she did. Um, come, all ye unfaithful. The invitation of Christmas is that we all come. We all come. Christmas is for those who are tired. Christmas is for those who are discouraged. Christmas is those is for those who are lonely. Christmas is for those who are sleepless. Christmas is for those who are despairing. Christmas is for those who want to give up. And is that you? Is Christmas for you? There is a, a scene in the line which in the wardrobe um, in Narnia, the uh, C.S. Lewis describes this land before Father Christmas comes as this is a place that's always winter, but it's never Christmas. Here is a place that's always winter, but it's never Christmas. And it may seem like that for us. Um, I know that some of us are in difficult places right now. It seems like this winter is never going to end, and there doesn't seem to be any hope of Christmas. There's a song that uh, I heard at CVS um, the other day, and it was Oh Holy Night. And here in the uh, in this drugstore, um, I heard the words, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. The weary world rejoices. Even at CVS, we're being reminded that this world, we're, we're weary, we're tired. Um, we don't even want to be in it sometimes. And yet there is a thrill of hope. There is a thrill of hope. And we look at today's passage to see where this thrill of hope is. Pastor Michael, he read through um, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And today we looked at the verses leading up to it. And this is perhaps an odd list of list for me to preach on. It's just a list of names, um, difficult names to pronounce sometimes. Um, what's going on here? When I was in college, I took a screenwriting course, and um, the professor was a guy who, in the 80s and 90s, he wrote a few scripts that turned into small-time Hollywood movies. And um, there was one cardinal rule, he said, to screenwriting, which is, if you're going to write a story, every page has to be filled with tension. There can't be anything uncomfortable. There, there can't be anything comfortable in it. There has to be tension, and there has to be... Uh, the, 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 whoever is watching the movie or reading this, this script... They should feel that there's something not right. There should be something compelling because you want to look for a resolution. Otherwise, it's boring. Because what makes for a good story? Uncertainty and excitement. But this is not what we have here in Matthew. We have just a list of strange names. This is what we have. The final book of the Old Testament um, in Malachi, uh, this was written 400 years before what we see in our passage today. Um, 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you would think that after all this time, there'd be something grand and explosive to kick off the New Testament. And instead we get this genealogy. But if we pay attention, we see in it something strange and also something grand and beautiful. That God works in ways that we don't. And it's on a timeline that's much slower than what we'd like, involving people that we may not even want to associate with. And this is the strange beauty of Christmas. So to get us to uh, understand that, I have three points for you. This is in your bulletin also on the screen if you're following along. Um, 
number one, the promise of God that brings us to Christmas. Number two, the means of God by which he works toward Christmas. And number three, the ultimate promise of God, which is what Christmas is. So our first point, the promise of God. So after we see the first verse in chapter one, um, we see that the list begins with Abraham. And this is really important because the, this, this is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a promise to Abraham. If we step back and we look at the entirety of the Bible, how does God engage his people? How does God relate to human beings? He relates to them through covenants. Covenants are promises that God binds himself to. So in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, and then again in chapter 15, God makes a promise to Abraham, this first name on, in the list of the genealogy. And he establishes a covenant with Abraham. And the promise is this, that you will have many descendants. And which is a nice promise, it's good, but maybe this is not really a big deal because it's all, not all that unique to have children. And even perhaps your children might have children of their own. Um, but this is a big deal when you're old and when you're childless and when it's not physically possible to have children because this doesn't happen. And God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. God told Abraham, Abraham, look into the sky. Look into the sky. And when Abraham looked up, he saw a thick blanket of stars in front of him. As numerous as the stars are, Abraham, so shall your descendants be. Abraham, you are old. Your wife's body doesn't function as it should if she wants to have a child. And yet you're going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. Abraham is nearly 100 years old at this point. His wife, Sarah, is 90 years old. And Abraham tells her of this promise that that he got from God. And what's her response? She laughs. She laughs because what else would you do if you were to hear something so ridiculous? What else would you do? It's impossible. So she laughs. But God means it. He means it when he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And to show how serious he is about it, he does something for Abraham. And he shows Abraham in graphic detail This is how serious I am about this promise. He says, Abraham, um, make animal sacrifices. And then in the dread, if you read Genesis, there's this um, really uh, kind of provocative image. It says that this image came to Abraham when he was in a deep and dreadful sleep. So God has Abraham lay out the animal sacrifices, and then in the dark, God passes a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch between the animal pieces. And when God is doing this, God is conveying to Abraham that if he, if God himself did not keep this promise, he too would be cut in half. This is what, this, what God is um, showing, that in the middle of this animal sacrifice, I'm going to be cut in between it. There's going to be a cut. There's going to be... Uh, these things will be cut in half. And this is how the ancients referred to the establishment of a covenant, that you are cutting a covenant with someone. God is so serious about this promise to Abraham that he's saying, I will bring the curse upon myself, that God would be the one that would receive the punishment if this covenant is not kept. This is the promise of God. 
And so the story goes that God keeps his promise. That old Sarah, this woman who laughed at the absurdity of God's promise, she became pregnant and she gave birth to Isaac. And the name Isaac, I love this. The name Isaac means laughter. Just as Sarah laughed at the promise of God, she gave birth to a son whose name meant laughter. And laughter is the second name in the genealogy. Isn't that strange that God would include that? Now, I want, to, want us to go back to the stars that, um, that I mentioned earlier, the stars that Abraham saw. Abraham, you will have countless descendants. And when Abraham looked up, he saw the name Isaac in the stars. He saw a star that represented Jacob and a star that represented Judah and so on. And for those of us who are in Christ, one of these stars was lit up for you. Can you believe that? The very eyes of Abraham looked upon a star that represented you. That these stars, which are, by the way, hundreds of millions of light years away, these are giant burning balls of gas. These were lit up by God to represent you. You, human being who stays awake at night worrying about your bills. You who feel the acute ache of loneliness during the holidays. You who wonder if your womb will ever be filled. You who are filled with anxiety and dread. You who has broken your promises and hurt the people around you. You who whisper curses at God because your life turned out nothing like how you planned it. You, deviant and depressed and doubt-filled and disillusioned and distant. A star was lit for you and Abraham's eyes fell upon it. This is the promise of God. And who could believe such a thing? That an old man and an old woman could not only have a child, but that they would have countless children. You're more likely to laugh at that than you are to be filled with wonder and awe. You should be laughing at the fact that Christmas is even a thing. And yet, this is the promise of God. And this is how the genealogy of Jesus begins. With an old man receiving an unbelievable promise. So unbelievable that the recipients of that promise would laugh. And so absurd is the fact that their promised child is named Laughter. The title of the sermon is A Long Faithfulness in the Same Direction. And this is a play on a quote by Frederick Nietzsche, who wrote um, in his book, um, Beyond Good and Evil. Um, by the way, he's a staunch, he was a staunch atheist. He's not an atheist anymore. Um, he's the one that coined the term a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And a popular book was written with the same title. And I wanted to convey with this title that there is in God... This resolve to keep his promises that in the story of God, in the mind of God, is a long faithfulness to his people in the same direction. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He does not lie. He does not forget. He does not become preoccupied with other things. He remains committed to the recipients of these promises. This is God's long faithfulness in the same direction. If God has made a promise to you, he will keep it. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to not keep his promises. 
And the promise of Jesus is kept because of the long faithfulness of God. And when Abraham looked up at the stars lit up in the sky, even though he didn't know it at the time, one of the stars would become the light of the world that would shine brighter, that would shine brighter than anything else. And how could that be? And this brings us to our second point. I read to you 42 names and I could spend a really long time going through each of I could probably spend one sermon for each of these names. Um, and I could give you the story behind each of the names. But for the sake of, the t- of our time together, I want to just point out four categories in the genealogy. There are, number one, the evil people. Number two, the women. Number three, the Gentiles. And number four, the nobodies. So really quickly, let me just go through them. Here is the, 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 the evil people in the passage. Those who are, uh, if not primarily marked by their evil, at least marked in some way that defines them. David, who is considered a friend of God, but also he was an adulterous murderer. There is Rehoboam, who lived lavishly. He overtaxed his people. He was a terrible king. There was Abijah, who started off well, but like his father Rehoboam, he also fell into sin. And he was also an evil king in the end. There is Joram, who murdered his brothers and was also an evil king. Uzziah, he started out well, but then he fell into sin and pride toward the end of his life. In the genealogy of Jesus are evil people, evil men. And then uh, the implication is that God wanted these men in the genealogy of Jesus. In the genealogy in Matthew... Um, we see something completely different from what was expected in the ancient world. Genealogies were something that you should be proud of. This is a way of establishing your identity. Who you came from mattered, and it would have been embarrassing to have these other people in the background of Jesus. And yet, here they are. The fathers of Jesus. Evil. And then there are the women. There are five women listed in this genealogy. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And again, if you look back to ancient times, in genealogies, you would only see the names of men because you wouldn't count the females. And all that mattered was the father and the son of that father. And this is what we're being told in the genealogy. That God is proud of the women in the genealogy. That he would not act like the other, this would not act like other genealogies. God wanted the women to be included. And then there are the Gentiles, there are Rahab and Ruth. And this is also, this is even scandalous. Because if you were an Orthodox Jew, you would be ashamed that there were non-Jews in your bloodline. There was uh, this attitude that Gentiles were dogs. You don't want anything to do with them. I don't want to associate with these people if they're not like us. And yet God includes them. Not only are they included, their blood is in the blood of Jesus. And then here is my favorite category. Shealtiel. Shealtiel. I was reading a few commentaries on this genealogy, and this is my favorite favorite line from all the stuff I read. Um, nothing is known about Shealtiel. We don't know anything about Shealtiel except for who his father is. Um, 
there is a nobody included in the genealogy of Jesus. And if you think about it, this is a beautiful thing. He might have been a worker working behind the counter at Walmart. He might have been someone who was languishing at his job. He might have been someone who achieved nothing of repute. Maybe his life was awesome. Maybe his life was painful. We don't know. But we do know that the Bible says nothing about him. We know nothing about this guy. And what about you? Does your life matter? Does your life matter? Shealtiel's life mattered. And as we look at this list, there are three implications that I want to point out. Number one is this, that God uses people we would never expect him to use. He uses evil men. He uses women, which was unexpected and almost scandalous in the ancient days. He used Gentiles, those who people looked down upon. And he even used nobodies. God uses people we would never expect him to use. The second implication is this, that God gets rid of all the ways we use to classify people. His love and favor is for all people. No matter what your Myers-Briggs type is, no matter what your Enneagram number is, no matter what socioeconomic level you belong to, no matter which race or ethnicity, no matter what political party, God does not classify you like that. Who does God welcome? Who does God welcome? We sang it earlier. Come ye sinners. Come ye sinners. Come. All. And the third implication is this. That God's work in our lives is often slow. It often doesn't make sense. We don't see where he's leading us. And we don't understand what he's doing. And in this genealogy, we see 42 generations. It takes 42 generations to make sense of God's promise to Abraham. Abraham had no idea what most of these people on the genealogy would ever be like. But the promise of Christmas is that not only is he doing something, but that he has been doing something. God has been doing something. He has been following this long line of faithfulness in the same generation. I know that this year has been tough for many of us. Thank you, David, for acknowledging it. Um, I know for a fact, actually, that 2021 has been hands down the worst year of your lives for many in this church. You did not think that it could get this bad, and yet it has. And what does Christmas say to us? It says that in the dark times, God has come to us because in the dark we're humbled in the dark we see our sins we see our limitations we see the futility of so many other things we're doing and it's in the dark places that god loves to come through christmas is god breaking into the darkness even into your crappy 2021 and even as you head into 2022 with dread christmas says god is this pinprick of light breaking through the darkness. Christmas is God saying that he will enter into our suffering. Christmas is the creator of the universe, of the eternal, infinite God stepping into, st- into time and space as a little baby. 
What is Christmas? Christmas is Jesus being born into a world of persecution, of unrest, of disillusion with the government, to an impoverished couple with no fanfare. And this is how God works. Isn't it strange? He works slow and in, in, in ways that we do not like. And yet this is how God works. In the news a few weeks ago, um, there was this big... St- in, in, in Asia and Japan, this was the huge story of the past few months. Um, and you might have seen it in, in, uh, online um, here as well. Um, there was there's this Japanese princess named Mako, and this was the emperor's niece, and she was in line to become a princess. And um, in Japan, this is how it works. But what did she do? And this was almost scandalous to the Japanese people. She fell in love with a commoner, someone not in the royal line, and she gave up her position as a royal. In, the Jap- in, in Japan, to marry this commoner. She gave up her, her status. She gave up a life of perhaps comfort and predictability. Why? Because she loved this man that had no royal blood in him. For love, she married him. She gave up her crown. There's more to the story, which is that she also uh, gave up 1.3 million U.S. dollars that female royals should have received when they lose their imperial status. Um, so it's, this happens, but she said, I'm going to give up that uh, million dollars as well because I want to be with this man. I want to be with this man. And this made uh, front page news in Japan. People were, some people were outraged. Some people were scandalized. Everyone was captured by this idea because this isn't something that should happen. But what happened? The paparazzi, they caught a, caught a glimpse of her in New York pushing a shopping cart at Bed Bath & Beyond. This is what she did. And I think in in a small way, this is what Christ has done for us. He gave up his position in heaven, a position of royalty and power to become a common man. And this is what we get, where we get the word Emmanuel from. This name Emmanuel, it means that God with us. God is with us. God gave up his place in heaven to be with his people on earth. He became a man, just like you and me. And what does Christus mean then? It means that God is with you. That God's plans for you and your life are not done yet. He's still faithful to you, though you do not see his hand. Um, a songwriter by the name of Mark Hurd, he has this great song called um, The Strong Hand of Love. And he says, we can laugh, we can cry, and never see the strong hand of love hidden in the shadows. And here is the strong hand of love of God hidden in the shadows, working for you. Working for you in ways you could not see, to bring about the promise that you cannot believe. In the newsletter this past week, I referenced this hymn by William Cooper. William Cooper, after a suicide attempt, he wrote this song entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And one of the lines is this, that behind a frowning providence, he he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And this year, you may have felt the frowning providence of God 
and you go, God, what are you doing? How can my life be this way? Why is there such darkness in my life? Why am I filled with such anxiety and depression? Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The smile of God is upon you. This is what Christmas is. Be encouraged that God's work in your life is not done. Even though you don't see his hand in the shadows, the strong hand of love working for your good. So these are the means of God. This is what Christmas is. He will work in ways that you do not expect, in ways you do not even like. And yet, his promise remains the same. His hand is steady upon you. And finally, the goal of God. The goal of God. Um, Christmas is awesome. This holiday season is, is awesome. But it's not really meant to be sentimental, even though... It is, and that's fine if you feel that way. Um, what Christmas really is, is an, an acknowledgement of pain and suffering and evil and darkness. Christmas, this is when you hear the hope in Christmas carols and hymns. Um, what you should be understanding is there's hope and there's light because there is despair and darkness behind that. There has to be a backdrop for the hope and the light that is coming and its difficulty and pain. And it's not just what we see and, ex- and experience around us, this suffering and evil and darkness. This is what's true inside of us because there is a darkness inside each one of us, one that wants to live our own way, one that wants to make our own light one that wants to rebel against the rules that God has established for us, and this is called sin. And God could have left it just like that. We could have went on living and with no one telling us that something is wrong. Um, he could have just stayed silent and left us here to die. He could have allowed us to walk into death and destruction, which are the consequences of our sin. But God does not leave it that way. First Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world as a baby to save sinners. This is why Christ came. Jesus came into darkness to save you from that darkness that exists outside in the world but also the darkness that exists inside you Christmas is God doing something about the sin inside of us. And let me close with what the same passage that we began our service with in the call to worship. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as, this is Paul writing to the Galatians, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, also, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, this is the birth of Christ. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions 
adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christmas is God giving up in Jesus Christ his rights as a son of God. Coming to this earth, paying the price. The cross is, if you remember what I mentioned with the promise of Abraham, that God cut him, he said, I would cut myself if the promise is broken. Well, guess what? We broke the promise, but God cut himself. On the cross, God allowed the curse to fall upon him in our place. And Christmas is saying, man, God loves you so much that he paid the price that you owed. That the Son of God was tortured and crucified and killed and then risen again in our place so that you too might become a son, a daughter of God. This is the ultimate promise of Christmas. I, I, I had a conversation with someone a while ago and um, they, were go- they were going through just a, a difficult time in their lives and they said, I just want someone to tell me that things are going to be okay. And I said, I can't promise you that. I don't know if things in your life will turn out how you want them to turn out. I don't know if your finances will work out. I don't know if your family life will become the way you want it to be. I don't know if you're going to keep that job. I don't know if fill in the blank. I cannot make that promise for you. But what I can make is what the Bible promises, which is that God is working on your behalf. From before the, uni- before the world began, before space and time existed, God had in mind you. He had in mind your name. He had in mind every single detail that would lead you to this place. He had in mind every single detail that he would work out. Imagine the millions, perhaps billions of turning points in your life to bring you to where you are now. And God isn't done with you. Christmas is the beginning of the story for us, that God is not done with us. He is faithful. He is faithful. He will save us from our sins. He will bring us where we need to go. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, we, we look at our lives, and if we're honest, we have to admit that there really isn't all that much we're in control of. We have this illusion of control, but really, we have no control And so we look to you to be our guide, to be our shepherd, for you to care for us. Where else will we turn, God? Where else will we turn? I pray that you would set this truth on our hearts, that we would trust you and love you more, and that we would respond in worship, God. Um, As as our Christmas trees are still up, as the lights are still up, as we still may be um, in this holiday season, I pray that this is where our attention would be, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus who came and lived and died for us. Amen. Amen.